Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Edge of Comfort podcast, where we explore the adventures, perspectives, and philosophies of world travelers. I am your host, Lee Thornquist, and thank you for listening. First off, how's everyone doing? It's been quite a while since I've released a new episode, but I am really, really excited to be back and share some new conversations with you. The conversation today is a terrific first one back, and I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to make it happen. So my guest today is Daniel James, better known as Dan Flying Solo. Dan is a super interesting guy who has and is still in the process of turning his travel dreams and work into reality. Now, Dan only started seriously traveling about four years ago, and has now since lived and worked all around the world. So a few of the things he's done in these four years, um, he's grown his blog to a large range of readers, he's worked on assignment with many different travel and media companies throughout the world, he taught himself photography and videography to capture his travels, Um, now he's regularly working with Lonely Planet, which is one of the best resources and voices in the travel community. And he's also starting his own digital media company in Portugal. And throughout most of these four years, he was also working as a web designer during the night to help fund some of the stuff. So a pretty impressive resume in such a short amount of time. Now, we're just going to get into it and let him tell you his story, since he does a much better job than I could do now. You know, kind of the whole point of having someone on to share their story. So, but really, you know, Dan is a great voice for mindful travel and pushing yourself to achieve your dreams and follow your interests, whether that's around traveling or not, and offers some great advice and insight I've not heard before uh, for travelers and also for people wanting to break into the travel industry, if that's your thing. Now, we did have a few issues with our connection, um, but overall, the audio is smooth There are a few parts where it sounds a bit glitchy or rough, so please just bear with us during the few times this happens, and uh, your patience will be rewarded because there are a lot of great gems in our conversation. You can find full show notes and links to some of the things we reference in our conversation, um, including links to his blog, danflyingsolo.com. You can find all these at edgeofcomfort.com forward slash EOCP15. That's 15. So thank you, Dan, for sharing so much about the ins and outs of your journey. Thank you for listening, and let's go. Good morning. What's all the commotion? Wow. Are banana fish big? Same, same, but different. If I can't scuba, then what's this all been about? Welcome to the Edge of Comfort podcast with your host, Lee Thornquist. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, on today's episode, we are talking with Daniel James, uh, better known as Dan Flying Solo. 
uh, currently in Portugal. Uh, Dan, thanks for joining today. How are you doing? I am great, thank you. How are you? Doing well. I know you were celebrating a birthday yesterday. How was everything with that? Yeah, it was lovely. We've got a beautiful uh, winter right now in Portugal, so sat outside in the sun having a barbecue. Very nice. Ah, sounds terrific. Um, I actually do want to talk about Portugal because I know you recently moved there. Um, but before we do talk about that, um, it looks like you've moved around a lot in the last few years. Um, I think you've lived and worked in England, Scotland, Portugal, Australia, Bali, and New Zealand in the span of just a few years. Um, can you tell me the story about how you decided upon New Zealand? So New Zealand was, um, when my Australian visa came to an end, I wasn't really sure whether to move back to the UK and base myself in Scotland or go on to New Zealand. So I actually did a um, public vote on the internet um, and kind of put it out to the hands of the people that follow my website and Instagram. And New Zealand came out top. So I got a flight on the 31st of December 2016, flew over New Year's Eve, and yes, yeah, started a new year and a new life in New Zealand on the 1st of January last year. So you literally let the, the people of who follow your website decide where you were going to move to next? Yep, pretty much. Um, there was an idea around it to uh, basically call it Say Yes 2017 and just kind of say yes to anything and everything and um, yeah, throw out a lot more decisions to uh, my followers. Um, it turns out New Zealand is a very expensive country, um, so that limited quite the opportunities there to, um, to yeah to throw caution to win quite as much once I got there. What city were you living in there? Um, I actually just uh, traveled there last May, so still fresh in my I, mind. <laughs> um, I actually moved around a little bit. I was in New Plymouth in Taranaki for the first few weeks, um, which was for work, and then I moved to Auckland um, and eventually settled in Wellington. Um, I think Wellington's a really cool little city, uh, loads of great bars and coffee shops and restaurants, tiny little capital, but it's got quite a cool atmosphere to it. Yeah, Wellington is really cool. I like that city a lot. Um, so wait, so I'm curious about this Say Yes 2017. Can you explain that a little bit more and some of the other decisions and um, things that you kind of, that saying yes more often led to? Um, yeah, so it was obviously moving to New Zealand was um, the first one, um, but then just kind of traveling to places that I might not have looked at. Um, when I was in New Zealand, I kind of did the anti version of New Zealand. Um, so I went to all of the places people told me not to go to, um, where there was, they said there was nothing going on. Um, and uh, I actually ended up leaving. Uh, the end of that skipped out a little bit. Could you say that again? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, so, yeah, from New Zealand, I ended up moving back to Portugal. Um, and that was, um, again, one of those random things. I was here out with my friends, and they were like, you should move here. And I was like, sure. So the next day, um, we went and got my paperwork to become a resident here. Um, so, yeah, the whole year was just kind of based around jumping on different assignments and trips and uh, places and just kind of making the most of the last year of my 20s I turned 30 um, last year so yeah it was just a, a cool year of kind of 
not really following any rules. Cool. When So when you were looking at um, some of the other countries you lived in, like Australia, Bali, Scotland, uh, I guess, how did you decide on those countries? Like, what were you looking for when deciding to move around, and how did you end up deciding on those places? Um, mainly by accident. Um, when I first started traveling four years ago, um, I, my first ticket was one way to Bali. Uh, one of my best friends has lived and worked there for many years. So I ended up kind of using it as a base for about four months. Um, and that was when I was just kind of getting into the blog and kind of working for myself. Um, and then Australia was meant to just be for traveling. Um, and I got to Sydney and within a couple of hours of being there, I completely fallen in love with the city. Um, and if it was easier to get a, a permanent residency, I'd probably still be there. Um, so yeah, I ended up sticking around there a bit longer than planned. Um, again, Sydney, Wellington, that side of the world is quite an expensive place to live. Um, hence why I got my work visa there to do some work there. And I actually started working for a tour company based in Sydney. And that was kind of my transition into working in kind of the travel photography, travel writing um, world because it was completely new to me. It wasn't something I've been doing before I left the UK. Yeah, I'd actually want to hear more about that and kind of how you got into that. So on your site, you say that you've only really been traveling properly since 2014. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about how this current lifestyle kind of came to be for you? Like when did you decide that this was what you wanted to pursue and what were the early days like for you? Sorry, that was a lot of questions. I come from a hospitality background. I worked in uh, various restaurants around the UK, opening them up and uh, settled in London for a few years running a restaurant. And then that's kind of a pretty exhausting job. So the plan was just to kind of get out and go and see the world. I um, hadn't really done like a big backpacking gap year. So the plan was just to go and head over to Asia, spend a few months around um, and then see what happened. Um, and then... Obviously, there's a lot of free time when you're traveling, so I got into photography um, and started writing stuff on the blog, which was absolutely terrible back then. <laughs> I cringe when I look at some of the old articles and read them quite quickly now. Um, and then, yeah, it was the the tour company. So I got reached out to by a lovely lady called Simla, who is now a good friend of mine, who owns the tour company in Sydney, and she messaged me on Instagram and invited me to come to Cambodia and Vietnam with them to uh, photograph their first ever tour and I deleted and blocked her because I thought it was a scam because uh, <laughs> at that time I, you know I, I wasn't a professional photographer um, I didn't really believe it and then she came back to me on Skype a week later got it all set up and that was my first ever professional photography gig happened a couple of months after that and yeah from there I kind of realized actually this is, is a career that you can make money out of and people clearly like my photography and um, yeah from there just more opportunities kind of started to come out the woodwork. It was um, happened quite quickly after that point. So with the photography, I know you said that you kind of self-taught with that. Um, did you start pretty much right when you uh, started traveling with all that free time and just work up your skills from there? Like how did you get so into that and learn the skills and uh, get to be as talented as you are now? Um, I think... It was just, I spent a lot, I'm quite obsessive. If I kind of get into something, I really obsess over it. So like a lot of the time when people go out for beers from the hostel, I just stay in and watch YouTube videos and tutorials and read 
books from like other photographers. Um, and at the time I wasn't really looking at it to be something to make money. It was just something I really enjoyed and I find it very relaxing kind of heading out on my own and, and taking photos. And then, yeah, I guess just kept studying, reading up, following different bloggers, photographers, watching their YouTube videos. And, um, yeah, eventually got to a point where, you know, someone deemed that my work had a value. Um, and yeah, I, I hear a lot of similar stories from people who are self-taught, you know, they have just put in hours and hours and hours of kind of practice. And in a way, I think it's better than, than being freshly trained because you're more focused on what you're capturing than kind of the technical side. Um, but since like I've started selling stuff for print and I've had to do a bit more intensive learning to kind of understand all of the technical settings and what you need to, you know, blow something up to put it on a billboard or a poster, for example. Um, so yeah, just learning. The internet's amazing. All of the stuff is out there for free now to learn. So it's, um, yeah, pretty awesome. So you said that you kind of like to go out alone and to shoot photography. And so I think that's a good transition into what your name actually is, which is Dan Flying Solo and some solo travel type things. Um, so yeah, can you just tell me a little bit more about why you prefer solo traveling and how you chose the Dan flying solo name? Yeah. Uh, so I actually started the, the terrible version of my blog about a year and a half before I set off full-time traveling. But at the time it was very sporadic. I worked in restaurants, so I'd usually have like a Monday, Tuesday off. Um, and my, Every other week, just to kind of get out and away from the job, I would challenge myself to go somewhere in Europe for two days with flights, accommodation, and all spending money for under £100. Um, and then I would document that on the blog in a very basic um, diary-like way. So that kind of was why I started traveling solo, was because those are weird days off for most of my friends or people that wanted to go away. Um, so I was just like, well, I'll go on my own. And then... I did a few trips like that, and at first I was shit at it. Um, I wouldn't even go in a restaurant to get food on my own. I was so scared. So I ate a lot of McDonald's and junk food on the streets. And then, yeah, after about four or five trips, I kind of just settled into solo traveling. And that's when I decided to kind of book the big trip on my own because I've been waiting around for friends to come. And then it's just a bit of a nightmare to, you know, when you talk about taking a year off work to kind of line up dates with people. So I just kind of went, yeah, just going to go on my own. And, um, yeah, I think it's hard when you first start traveling on your own. I think everyone takes a bit of an adjustment, and I know it's not for everyone. Um, but if you're quite outgoing, it really helps. Like at first I was quite introverted when I was traveling. I wouldn't really talk to anyone. And then I kind of had to push those boundaries to start making connections and, and meeting up with people on the road so that you've actually got people to share costs with if you're going to hire a car or whatever. That's interesting you say it's it's not for everyone. Um, I, I agree with that, but do you think that everyone should try to do a solo trip at least once in their life maybe? I think so, and I, it doesn't even need to be far. I think like even if you just stay in your home country and you drive for two hours and you know go somewhere new and do it on your own, I think it really, you can learn quite a lot about what makes you tick and your confidence levels from, from going off and just experiencing something on your own. And you kind of see 
the world differently. Like I, I do think it's better if you can go to a more far-flung place on your own than than somewhere nearby. But I think both can help you. You look at the world differently when you're on your own. You're not necessarily sharing the the moments of the travel with your friends, and you're more aware of what's around you and you're going to meet new people and yeah i think everyone should give it a go at least once and i think most people that do give it a go do enjoy it um to a degree and then some people will obviously uh, love to you know keep traveling on their own other people won't but I, yeah i think it's um it's become so common now it, you know it's a real it used to be something five six years ago people were calling like a trend and now it's just very common i think for people to go off on their own so if, if you do have the opportunity to do it absolutely i'd say jump on it i think it can really change like i know it's changed my life all of the connections i've made from traveling solo and not people i'd have probably met or got to know if i'd have been traveling in a group of friends so yeah it's amazing what um what you can do and there's so many websites and apps and forums to meet people as well before you go so even if you you don't want to 100 go solo you could arrive there solo, but you might have arranged to, you know, already meet up with someone through couch surfing or an Airbnb experience or just on a website or forum. So you can kind of set up in advance that like buffer, I think. So you don't have to necessarily do everything on your own, but you can find your own balance. Yeah, definitely. And I, I actually just got back from a pretty big solo trip myself. And one of the things that people kept saying to me when I told them I was going by myself or they'd be like oh my gosh I could never do that weren't you so lonely how did you deal with things and you know what what do you say to people who when they're having these concerns and kind of already ruling themselves out of ever being able to do something like that just because they think they'd get lonely or think it wouldn't know how to deal with safety and um, just never done something like that before like how would you try to uh, persuade someone to do that um, who just has so so much concern around it. Yeah, I, I generally kind of start with talking about where they should go. I think um, there's some destinations that are a lot more suitable to solo travel, um, a lot more accessible. Um, also, I think, you know, there's certain countries that, whether you're a, a man or a woman, you, the, the expectation might be different there. So I think that's something I kind of try and keep in mind when I'm talking to people and just try and focus on, you know, the, the positive points of the particular destination that I know would be good for them to start at. Um, and yeah, I guess it is lonely at the very beginning. Um, like if you can go somewhere where you already know someone or you've met someone or you have some kind of connection, so you, you've at least got a friendly face there, it's a great start. Um, but I think when you travel long-term, I think actually it's not lonely solo traveling. I think when you come home is actually when you feel more lonely, which is quite weird. So that's something I always discuss with people now is I say like when I, you know, when I first moved back here, I felt quite lonely from being in one place and not having all those constant new connections. And, you know, when you're traveling or you're in a hostel, you can turn around to anyone on any time of any day and be like, I'm going to go grab a drink. Like you're more planning that ahead or so that's kind of something that I like to talk to people about now and just kind of twist it to look at it from a different angle because it, it's just mindset you know people just need to have the confidence to know they can do it and that they're going to be safe and you know i think it helps so much more now that we're so connected with the internet like if you need to reach out to friends or family you can do it instantly um so i think that makes people feel a bit more comfortable kind of heading off alone 
So two questions following up from that. Um, one would be, so let's say we've got a male and female each between 23 and 35, and they want to do their first solo trip. So you say you usually talk about first the destination. Um, where would you maybe recommend a few places that uh, these people could go to maybe in 2019? Um, Europe is a really great place to start. I think a lot of people will tend to kind of lean towards Southeast Asia as their first kind of backpacking trip or solo trip, just because it's, you know, it's always been known for that. Um, but I think Europe is generally a good place to start. Um, Slovenia would be a great country, I think. Um, it's quite good value. It's quite compact. It's brand new, it's a real mix of like both alpine activities, you can um, go foraging, you can go cycling and hiking. Um, and the cities are quite small, so not overwhelming. So I think that is an example of a really good place to go. Um, obviously, I think for some people, it's best to stay for their first trip solo to an English-speaking country. Um, so I always think like if it's someone from the States, I'm like, well, you know, you could come to the UK, but maybe not do London, do another part of the UK. Um, and then when it comes to my personal favorite countries, um, Indonesia is somewhere I love. It's my favorite country. And I think Bali is quite a good place for a solo trip. Um, but I wouldn't ever recommend going to like the more remote part of Indonesia for your first solo trip because it's quite intense in terms of kind of planning and logistics. Um, just the tourism infrastructure isn't across all of the islands yet. Um, so for me, I think Europe is, is probably the safest bet for a first-time solo trip. I think you can have a load of different experiences. You can buy the rail passes. It's very set up for it. Um, Lisbon, for example, in Portugal and Porto. Portugal is a really safe country, very welcoming people. Um, it's quite good geographically if you're coming in from the States or from anywhere else in Europe. Um, so yeah, I, I, for me, I try and guide people more towards starting in Europe for a comfort thing rather than going towards Southeast Asia for a cost thing. Because I think if you're going with a group of people, Southeast Asia is kind of the standard place to start. But for your first solo trip, Europe is where I started traveling solo. Um, and yeah, I think in general, it's, um, it's a bit more, if you haven't got the confidence there, it's a comfortable place to start. Okay. Um, and so you mentioned some places, like said, like uh, maybe skip London, um, and that I think is a good lead into some off the beaten path destinations. Um, you talk a lot about these on your blog and just kind of trying to find places that aren't as heavily overrun with tourists and just kind of uh, geared toward tourism. Um, and so I I was reading through um, a Europe hidden gems list. Um, there was one that had like 15 places in Europe and then there's another one that was geared towards, uh, Europe in the off season, uh, like winter yep. time. Um, so can you talk a little bit about trying to find places off the beaten path? Like how do you go about finding places that aren't as well discovered? Especially it's kind of word of mouth. Um, obviously I'm very lucky. I've got quite a good network of travel bloggers and travel writers, that I know from um, various different publications I've worked with or places. So a lot of a lot of it can come from that. Sometimes it's about just uh, we're very lucky in Europe with cheap flights, especially on like Ryanair. Like I can go and say, hey, 
I want to fly somewhere from Faro next week and it'll be $20 probably return and it might be to some random place in Poland that I've never heard of and I'll be like, hey, I'll just book that. What's the worst that can happen uh, for 20 bucks? So I think um, it's become a lot easier to find these places now because there's a lot more flights connecting smaller regional airports. Um, so places that you might never have thought of going before, I will try and tie in with a trip so rather than flying let's say i was going to go to meet friends in prague rather than flying into prague i'd look at another nearby airport that's small and regional start off there and then traveling by train so then i kind of get the two sides of the country i get to see a smaller place that i've not heard of before you know and then the main destination um but i'm also a bit of a sucker for just reading through guidebooks and finding the chapters of places that are tiny and don't have much written about them and then making it my plan to kind of head off to those places when I'm in the country. Um, and road trips, road trips are the best way to find new places. I've done uh, road trips for like Amman um, in the Middle East. Uh, I did a big one for Italy this year. Um, went through the Balkans last year through Montenegro, Albania and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, and if you're in a car and you're driving and you see somewhere you want to stop, just stop, get out. Um, and you, that's kind of how you find the places that are generally amazing, but no one else is there. So I think it's, I think in Europe now, especially if you look at places like Barcelona and Dubrovnik, um, I've been through both this summer, just through flight connections and then left straight away. Um, and it's just in, I just think it's too intense now. These places need to be given a bit of a, a break. And of course you should go to them. The, you know, they are bucket list destinations, but if you can go in the off season when they're not so crowded and, and the local businesses aren't struggling with such a demand, you know, it's it's a much nicer way to go and enjoy those places, I think. Yeah, I actually, that reminds me of, um, uh, I'm sure you've been to like Maya Bay in Thailand and they yeah. have completely <laughs> shut that down for like a few months because they're like tourism is absolutely killing this area like we need to let it breathe and like chill out for a little bit oh yeah i was just saying i was there that was one of my first ever long-haul trips probably eight eight years ago um and even then we couldn't even get onto my bay we had to jump off the boat and swim in because there were so many people there so it's um it's good that people are now taking the steps i think to help repair the damage um and it's really hard to kind of if I feel like as travelers, we have to support, you know, those decisions and then try and go and find somewhere new in Thailand to still give the money to the local economy, but also understand that, that you know, we need to look after our planet. Otherwise, you know, the next generation aren't going to get to see these amazing places we can. Yeah. Do, so, like, do you ever feel like you almost don't want to talk about a hidden place you find, like with your um, with your off the beaten path, hidden gems list? Uh, like, do you almost feel like guilty in a way for bringing it to light and fear of like you could turn it to somewhere that gets overrun by tourism? There's definitely been places that I've been to that I've never written about. Um, I'm not saying I never will. I don't think have the infrastructure to cope. Um, I'm actually, so I update that list every year. So the, the version that's coming out in November for 2019, um, I've, I've definitely kept that in mind more. And I've looked at places that do have, you know, a limited number of beds perhaps within that region for tourists or places that are, 
for example, San Marino, uh, which is one of the smallest countries in the world, it's, it's surrounded by Italy. That's going to be on the next list, but that's going to be about staying there overnight. So I think that's how we as kind of travel writers have to look at things as a lot of people will do San Marino as a day trip from a cruise. But if you go there and you stay overnight, you've got this beautiful medieval old city completely to yourself. There's only about eight, nine hundred beds there. So it's I think it's about writing about places and not just being like, hey, this is a cool place to go. Go in July at 12 o'clock on a Saturday. It's saying this is a cool place to go. But this is the best way to do it, to get the best experience and to make sure you're helping out you know, the local country, the economy, et cetera. And I, I think generally a, a lot of travel writers and bloggers have become a lot more aware of that. So what someone's always going to write about a place, a place is always going to get discovered and it's going to get talked about. And I think writing about them and giving, you know, the advice behind them is a better way to promote them than some places in recent years have just gone viral because of one Instagram photo that's then been shared across loads of accounts. Everyone goes and takes the same photo, puts the same photo up, and then you know no one's really then having the conversation about this is the best way to experience this place, this is the local businesses to support. It just becomes about a photo opportunity, which is great for driving tourism, but as Iceland you know, has seen in the past few years, like if you don't have the plans in place to cope with it, um, you know, it can quite quickly turn into quite a negative, especially for the local people that, that live there. And that was something that I really noticed when I lived in New Zealand, is that the infrastructure isn't always there for the camping or the toilets. And there was quite a backlash from a lot of people, locals there, about how, you know, in their eyes, the country was being destroyed by tourism because people weren't respecting the nature and in such a beautiful country that's so well protected i can completely understand why you know that would frustrate them yeah absolutely so so if i'm understanding correctly it's almost like you'd rather be in control of the script when you're bringing these places to light so you can give the proper advice and kind of help people travel there in a conscious way i think so yeah and i think there's only so much that you can get across on social media um, like I, 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 every now and then I get attacked on social media for not giving enough information, but you know, there's only so long you can make an Instagram caption about a place before people switched off or it's become irrelevant. Um, so I think, yeah, having the blogs, um, and this is why I use blogs a lot more to plan my trips is you get to see, here's someone's personal insight tips. You know, you're hearing how they had a, what worked for them, what didn't work for them, um, so A, you can get excited about experiencing the same thing, but you can also go in and, and see the country or the destination the best way possible, I think. A uh, few more questions on um, the hidden gems and then we can move on. Um, one, so one of the things I saw is a picture of all these people with torches, which looked like some sort of revolting mob. Um, but it turned out that it was a picture of some festival in Edinburgh and apparently there's like a ton of festivals there throughout the year. Can you talk a little bit about this and just tell me more about these festivals that go on there? Yep. Um, so I actually was the blogger in residence this summer for the festivals in Edinburgh. Um, so I spent all of August there. Um, the one that you're talking about on the website is Hogmanay, which is the New Year's celebration in 
enema, which goes on for three days. And yeah, there's fireworks, there's a torch-lit procession. There's a, uh, everyone goes for, not everyone, but loads of crazy people go for a swim in the freezing sea. There's all of these different events um, that happen over New Year. So it's a really cool place to be for that. Uh, but yeah, there's 12 different festivals throughout the year. Five of them happen in August, um, which the Fringe and the International Festival are probably the most famous. Um, but it's, it's a whole year of program, basically, of different comedy and dance and music, um, live bands. Um, and Edinburgh calls itself the festival city because it has so many festivals. And I think the Fringe Festival for a ticket event is only outsold by the World Cup and the Olympics, I think. So the, the number of tickets that are sold over that month for that festival is insane. So it's a really cool time to visit the city um, because everywhere you go, there's something happening. Every bar has a show on, every theatre has a show on, all of the squares and gardens are turned into silent discos or beer gardens. So the whole city is the festival. So it's a very unique place um, to spend some time in the summer and just have a great laugh around loads of people that are there for exactly the same reason. Um, and then there's different festivals as well. There's a film festival, the science festival. Um, so Edinburgh's a, a really cool city anyway. Uh, but if you time up a visit to be when one of those is on, you, you kind of know that you can spend quite a few days there really being entertained and you're not going to get bored in Edinburgh. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. I've, I've done the festivals for the past three years now. Um, and yeah, I'm going to go back this new year and do Hogmanay for the first time, which will be really cool. Oh, sweet. Uh, you, so you actually talk about Scotland a lot, it seems like, or have written about it. Maybe that's just more recent, um, being on assignment there. Um, and I know this is kind of an ignorant, uh, United States view, at least for myself, but when I think of Scotland, I just think of like cloudy and rainy and cold and just not anything special but from what i've read on your blog that does not sound like the case at all um can you explain um, a little bit more about scotland and because like it makes me want to go there when i started actually reading about it it is definitely cloudy and rainy quite a lot uh i've been there in august camping and we've had torrential rain for days um but because of the country the mountains and the lakes and it kind of all adds to the the destination um, so even if it is rainy or a bit cloudy and misty, it kind of adds to this quite spooky, special atmosphere. Um, and it's great. It's, it's very compact. There's hundreds of islands in Scotland. Some of them have beautiful beaches. So if you're there on a, on a sunny day, they're, they're stunning. Um, but it's basically you've got all of these amazing kind of green mountains and views but then you, they're littered around with lots of castles and ruins of castles. Um, so you kind of get a bit mix of both the architecture and the landscape. And then um, there's loads of really cool things going on in the cities. Glasgow is the biggest city in Edinburgh. Um, and it's had a, a, a bad rep, I guess, um, before. But it's a really cool place with lots of great food and uh, museums and galleries now. Um, but I, I worked in both Edinburgh and Glasgow many years ago back in my restaurant days. So I think because I, I took a bit longer to get to know them when I was living and working there, um, I kind of developed quite a soft spot for the country. Um, and Scottish people as well are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely a great place to do as a road trip because it's quite compact. You can, you can really see a lot of the country in seven, ten days. 
Um, but yeah, the weather, the weather isn't always perfect. Um, but it's one of those places that kind of the weather works, even if it's a gray day, there's still so much beauty there that it kind of works for kind of setting the atmosphere. Um, you know, and especially now with the so many Harry Potter kind of links and, and different places that you can see, like the, uh, Skyfall 007, uh, movie was opened up in Glencoe. That's stunning. Um, you've got the Jacobite train, which people often refer to as the Harry Potter train because J.K. Rowling's from Scotland. So I think when you take all of the kind of different things that there are to do there and all of the, the myths and the movies and the books that have been set there, it's quite a, a fascinating place. Um, and for me, it's the most beautiful part of the UK um, in terms of the, the mountains and stuff up there. Um, which I probably shouldn't say being from England, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very, very beautiful country. It's quite like New Zealand, um, or Canada, I think in terms of kind of the mountains and the lakes. Um, and I think people are generally really surprised when they come to Scotland and realize just how beautiful it is. That is a very strong comparison. If it's anything like New Zealand or Canada, then I imagine it's beautiful. (laughs) Because those places are just unbelievable. <laughs> um, I think last year, Rough Guides called Scotland the, aimed at the most beautiful country in the world. I wow. think. Um, I think it beat beat out Canada and New Zealand. I believe. Wow. That's impressive. Then. Wow, that's okay. Well, Scotland yeah, has moved so... up on the list then. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely definitely a, a great place to visit, and um, you know I think a lot of a lot of Canadians and Americans tend to um, I've just met a lot of people that are in Scotland because they're tracing their ancestry back there, um, and obviously there's a lot of big families and old clans that used to live there, and many of them, you know, immigrated to the Americas over the years. So it's quite fascinating. A lot of people have come to kind of do their DNA trips around Scotland that I've met whenever I've been up there. And I always find that really interesting, um, how people are kind of coming back to see, you know, where their great grandfather's from or or stuff like that. So I guess for any Americans that have that connection, it's quite a nice um trip for that reason as well. Yeah, all the there's a few companies now that offer services for like uh genealogy mapping, I think like twenty three and me or Ancestry and those have really kind of taken off here. Um, people trying to figure more about their ancestry and like past families, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely a, a huge growing trend for um, that. I see those appetites all the time now in Europe. Um, so unfortunately, mine is very boring. There's, there's nothing. I found out there's, <laughs> not, there's nothing interesting in my DNA. Um, but yeah, I think it'd be a really cool way to kind of um, to travel is if you've got a load of cool places that you've got old relations from. It'd be awesome to kind of check them out. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, one more question on this topic, and then I have a few questions about some of your work with Lonely Planet. Um, so this might be tough to choose and a little bit of a generalization, but for someone who's never been to Europe or only to the major cities like Paris and Amsterdam, um, what are a few places, maybe one to three, uh, on your list that you recommend going to first? Um, countries or, or places? Um, let's do two countries and two places. 
Okay. Uh, countries, I'd say Portugal. Um, obviously, I'm quite biased now, um, but I've got to know the country quite well over the last year and a half, um, and it's super safe, relatively affordable. Um, we've got great wine and food, but there's also you know, awesome cities like Lisbon and Portugal, where I live on the south coast, is some of the most beautiful beaches, great surf, um, lots of history, um, and amazing architecture. So Portugal is definitely up there because it's compact and you can do a lot in a short space of time. Um, and then I'd say for my second country, Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, which no one's really ever heard of <laughs> a lot. Um, so it's a little country in Eastern Europe um, and it doesn't get as much coverage. It's not that well visited by tourists. Um, but it's a really fascinating place. It's, it's had a lot of quite tough and horrific history in recent years. Um, not that recent, but within my lifetime, um, which is, is quite deep. So I'm not going to go into that too much here. Um, but it's kind of becoming really well known as a, an adventure activity destination for people kind of in the know. Um, there's amazing white wharf rafting. You can go hiking through the mountains, through all of these little kind of ethnic villages where people still live in kind of traditional farming ways. Um, and you can do homestays in those now. Uh, Mostar and Sarajevo are two fascinating cities with very diverse architecture. Um, there's a mix of Bosniaks, Croats and Serbs that live in the country. So it's just a really really fascinating place and everyone i know that's been there has been completely blown away by it in terms of uh, of just a how beautiful it is but b how fascinating it is so i think those two are my kind of top pick countries now and um bosnia herzegovina you won't really have any problems with crowds outside of mostar and same in portugal outside of lisbon really so they're, they're both places that there's still quite a lot to discover um and then for two places i'll pick two places that aren't in those countries. Um, so I would say Trentino in Italy. Um, so this is a region in the north of Italy um, and it's got the Dolomites in it. So you've kind of got this Swiss mountain vibe, but with the Italian kind of food and passion and atmosphere. Um, so there, again, there's, it's, a, it's quite similar in terms of I guess BC and this beautiful lakes with perfect reflections of the alpines and the mountains. So you can go kayaking, you can go hiking. Um, the cities are small, but kind of a good size for a city break. Um, so yeah, Trentino in Italy is kind of that little region that's awesome. Um, and another random one that I went to this year is the Vipava Valley in Slovenia. Um, which is not far from the Italian border, um, but it's a really good kind of foodie destination without the crowds. Everything's very family-run, lots of family businesses making their own wine, making their own cheese, making their own cured meats. Um, so if you want kind of like a foodie trip, but also with kind of really great cycling, paragliding, and not too far from the beach, I'd say Vipava uh, Valley in Slovenia. Um there in Trentino were two places this year that really, really blew me away. Um, so I'm kind of not going to stop talking about them for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask about some of the food stuff because I know you just had a recent assignment about like an ultimate eat list assignment or photography assignment. Um, but before we talk about that, um, 
I don't know if you're still doing this, but it looked like a little bit in the earlier days you were also uh, to help kind of fund some of this and when you were getting started out with the whole travel blogging thing that you were also doing um, web design at night. Is that something that you're still doing? Um, if yes or if no, what was your schedule like when you were trying to make money that way and still grow your blog and presence in this community? Um, I'm not doing it so much now. Um, I'm in the process of opening up a company in Portugal where I will be offering that service, but I won't be doing it myself. But when I was doing it, um, it was hard to kind of balance both, um, especially moving between countries and having clients in America, in Europe, in Australia. It was a lot of weird hours to kind of be on Skype and have those meetings. Um, but my day would kind of look like kind of how it looks still now you know when I'm traveling in the day like you're out about you're exploring you're photographing and then in the evenings you are you know sat at home working so um it would it was just a bit more of a balance then I couldn't spend as much time on the blog growing it as much as I'd like um because I needed the income from the web design um but yeah for the for a while for about six seven months especially when I was in New Zealand because um, I was doing that and I was working in a bar as well. Um, that was kind of probably the, the hardest part was those kind of six, seven months in New Zealand um, kind of balancing free jobs, I guess. Um, but yeah, you know, you put, if you've got to do it, if you want to make a lifestyle work, you've got to, you know, put the hours in. So for me, it didn't really bother me because I enjoyed all of those things. Um, I enjoy the web design and the photography and the writing. So it's... Um, yeah, I think I've met a lot of people who, especially in like digital nomad hubs where people do work stupid amounts of hours. And I think a lot of people assume whether it's because, you, you know, the, you get the impression on Instagram that it's just sitting around a pool with a coconut, um, you know, typing for a few hours. I, the reality of a lot of people I met was, you know, 14 hour days, every day working to kind of keep their lifestyle going. Um but then, you know, they, they go and take two weeks, four weeks, six weeks off to go on an epic trek through Borneo or, you know, go traveling somewhere where there's no internet. So it's, it's a weird lifestyle. There's not really much um, continuity or routine to it, um, which is I'm trying to get more of a routine now. I, I'm not having to do that work as well. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just it's just something you suck up and get on with because the alternative for me was to move back to the UK and go back to my old job. And that's not what I wanted to be doing with my life. So, so with, with so many kind of resources out there today and, and travel bloggers and kind of that, the trend towards a digital nomad lifestyle, um, how do you create original content and kind of create your own place or an audience in the travel space? You have to give a shit about what you're writing about. Um, I don't often write like top 10 things to do in X list because the competition for that is huge, not just with TripAdvisor and the big websites, but you know, no one really needs another top 10 things to do in Bangkok list. Um, but what people might need is top 10, um, I don't know, top 10 unique restaurant spots in. Bangkok and then you would write about eating on a helipad or whatever so I think it's a find what you're passionate about and then 
be kind of make that content the best it possibly can be. You know, I think especially when it comes to blogging and writing content, you need it to be ranking on Google, ideally. So if your content is middle of the road, it's not going to get to the top of Google. You know, you need to kind of be looking at what is at the top of Google and then being better than, than that. Um, and if you can find like your niche, I think that really helps. I think a lot of people keep saying there's no space for any more travel bloggers. And that's not true, in my opinion. More and more people are traveling. There's plenty of space. But you just need to find kind of your focus and what your niche is going to be. And, like, I've kind of fallen off that a bit in the last few months. Like, I'm not – I've been kind of like, which direction do I want to take this website? Now I'm not traveling full-time. What, what do I want to be talking about? So I'm kind of reassessing what that is for me. Um, but, yeah, you need to be known for something. You need to be kind of the go-to guy. And the best thing really is to become an expert in a place rather than changing country every four or five days and not really being able to add any value to the conversation. Pick the countries you want to focus on. I spent seven, seven and a half months in Indonesia over the past three years. So I've got a lot of content on that and a lot of magazines or, or people will come and ask me to write about that because they know I'm an expert on it as opposed to someone that's just bitten for a week. So I think you kind of have to have a bit of a business strategy about how you're making your plans um and just bring something a bit different to the table don't just copy what other people are doing so when you're when you're making this original content and kind of finding your niche how do you extend the reach of your content and really make it more accessible you know because obviously internet is almost accessible to everyone around the world so how are you finding success in getting this content out there and marketing it and finding people who want to read it other than just like search engine. Um, so other than Google, uh, Pinterest has been surprisingly the biggest traffic driver for me. Um, and it's a really great tool for kind of reaching people. I think a lot of people look at Pinterest as social media, but I look at it more as a, a search engine like Google because um, a lot of people will find your content because they're searching for visual inspiration or, you know, typing in places or names and, and your pins will come up and then they'll click through to your website and, you know, read the content and hopefully stick around for a while. Um, but for a long time, for about the first year and a half, um, when my blog kind of did start taking off, my traffic was exclusively from Pinterest because I didn't have the, the kind of organic ranking for Google to really be picking me up much. Um, so I think Pinterest is a really underused tool by a lot of people in the blogging community to really drive traffic, um, especially if you have strong visual content and good images and you're a photographer, I think it's a great place to kind of drive that traffic to you. Um, and then obviously like you Twitter, you know, to a degree still brings content, um, Facebook to a degree. Um, but I think a big thing that you kind of need to have is each of your social channels. You need to go in with a kind of different strategy if you're going to drive traffic. Instagram for me is not somewhere I want to drive traffic to my website. I never really put links out on anything. For me, that's just to share my photos and the conversations and, and the chats I have with people on Instagram are very different from what I would have in my blog comments, for example. So I think it's not necessarily trying to just push, push, push content everywhere you can, but to do it well and in the right places at the right times that's some really good advice <laughs> i i've not really looked into pinterest at all that's interesting you say that that's definitely something um i'd like to look into more
So, last question on this. Um, I guess what what advice would you have for someone just starting out and maybe looking to pursue a career in travel, whether that is for writing or blogging or videography or something else in that space? Um, I think, firstly, don't give up if you really want to keep on going. Um, I've come close a couple of times, and if I had, I wouldn't have, have you know, ticked all the boxes I have now. Um, but secondly, I think make sure you're, you're doing it for the right reason. I get emails every day from people asking me how to make money from traveling. And like, I never wanted to make money from traveling. I just wanted to travel and see the world and meet people. And, you know, that was why I got into it because I actually love traveling. And I think if you're going to work in travel, you should enjoy it and you should love it and you should live and breathe it because if you don't, your content is not going to seem authentic. So, you know, there's a lot of other blogging niches that make a lot more money than travel. Uh, so I think if you specifically are going to go into travel, you need to love what travel is and know what your voice is going to be and what you're going to focus on and which part of travel matters to you. And then you need to create the content around that that people will engage with and relate to you on. Um, and thirdly, networking. I think it's can be a bit lonely, especially if you're traveling on your own. Um, and like I try and avoid the digital nomad hubs quite a lot because I find if I spend too long in them, I forget who I'm writing for and I'm starting to write content for the people in those hubs rather than the average traveler who, you know, might just have two weeks vacation a year, but they want to go somewhere really cool. Those are the people I want to be writing for. So it's really important to, to network with other bloggers and other people in the community, but not become obsessed on that, you know, like you shouldn't be striving to have loads of other travel bloggers following you on social media because that's not your audience. Your audience should be, you know, the people who need the help traveling and want tips and, and the end, end product, the end user, I guess. I just see so many people getting very obsessed with, with kind of like their personal connections and they kind of forget about the reader and who they're writing for. So it's really important to balance between networking and going to conferences and, and digital in my space and making contacts with people in the same industry and bouncing ideas off whilst really making sure your content focuses on being appealing to the people that you really want to read it, which is at the end of the day, the people that are going to book that trip and be inspired by you. What what's been one of like the a consistent challenge that you faced maybe more recent in the last year or two um, with this sort of career path? Um, cash flow, absolutely. Um, it's um, you know some months there's no income, some months there's lots of income. It really you really need to kind of know what your your financial model is going to be. I think when you go into this, I'm lucky that now my website's getting enough traffic that from advertising I make a nice bit of passive income every month. Um, and I, for years I refused to put adverts on my website cause I find them really annoying, but I realized if, if the website's not making me money, I can't keep on doing it. So, um, and then it's campaigns, you know, there's a lot of different things I do to make work. One week I might be sat in the office writing articles for a, a magazine. The next week I'll be going and filming videos for tourism board to use. The next week I'll be doing something for my blog on a, on a campaign. So you really need to kind of either have the money to back you up when you're first getting started or stay in a full-time job, which I did, you know, with the website for quite a while. Um, but even now, like, it's 
still a bit scary some months you know like i can see like in december i've not got any work booked yet so there's no income coming in so i think it's just um trying to find as many avenues to make sure you've got an income so if one thing doesn't work you can move on to something else that month to make the money and be okay i think that's the biggest thing that most freelancers face especially in their first couple years is just keeping that cash flow going um so the more strings you have in your bow the easier it's going to be okay um i know we are a little bit past four right now. Do you have a few more minutes to maybe talk a little bit about Lonely Planet? Yeah, absolutely. No okay. rush. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, I saw, I don't know exactly how long ago it was, maybe a little over a year, um, when you were able to join Lonely Planet for like their Trailblazer program, I believe it's called. Um, so can you just tell me a little bit more about your work with Lonely Planet? Like, how did it start working with them, and how long have you been doing assignments with them? Yep, so um, that scheme is called Pathfinder Scheme, which is a open to all bloggers, creators, photographers, um, and you basically just signed up for it on the website. There was three levels, community level, assignment level, and trailblazer. Um, applications are currently closed, um, but I think they'll reopen next year. Um, so at community level, it's just a community. At the assignment level, Lonely Panic will potentially start giving you assignments to go on and then trailblazer level is kind of like the brand digital brand ambassadors i guess there's seven of us um i think on that level and we will do a lot of stuff around various different things so like i've done um i've been commissioned to write for their magazine for the books um but mainly what we do in that scheme is focused on online and digital stuff so it might be social media campaigns creating content for them uh for example i was just in spain for the launch of the ultimate eat list which is the world's top 500 food experiences ranked and it's a new book they brought out so san sebastian and eating pinchos was number one so i was in spain with them most recently for 10 days um, on a photography writing assignment gathering content around that so it can be a really diverse range of opportunities with them um, it started just from signing up to the community side um, and there's roundups every month on the forum where you can post your best work and they'll look at it and they'll be like, we love this and give feedback. And then from there, they um, picked up a couple of my photos and then they asked me to start doing some more work with them. Um, and then, yeah, November last year, the Trailblazer level uh, launched um, in London at uh, WTM, one of the big travel conferences where we were last year. Um, and yeah, so since then I've been doing more and more regular stuff with them. Um, they're a brand I love. I love what they stand for. I love that the founder, Tony Wheeler, who wrote the first guidebook after driving through um, Asia, is still involved with the company. Um, everyone there is really passionate about travel and about traveling right and about, you know, the whole world. Like, they write guidebooks on Antarctica, you know, they, they, if it's safe to be in a country, they will be writing a guidebook and updating it every year or two. So they're just a brand that I think really cares about traveling and, and you know, getting out and seeing the world. So for me to partner with them was always a, a bit of a dream. I think I bought my first book from them in 2006. So, um, you know, I've been using their stuff for 12 years and now to work with them is, yeah, it's a bit of a dream come true, to be honest. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, Lonely Planet's one of like the most trusted sources, I think, for travelers, especially backpackers and people who, like you said, are really trying to travel right and do it in a 
in a mindful and, and good way. So that's really cool. Um, so what are some of the other like really cool assignments you've been able to, to do with them? I think one of my um, favorite memories with them was when I went to Queensland in Australia um, and it was filming a like presenting a short clip um, for them and free mobile in the UK. Um, and it was focused on um, the Aboriginal cultures in, in that part of Queensland. So I got to spend three days filming with um, a local Aboriginal artist called Binner. Um, and he took me to um, lots of kind of places in that area that meant a lot to him and to his family and um, traditionally hunting with him on the beach. And then we went into the rainforest and we were foraging for these local berries. And he was teaching me where he got the inspiration for his artwork. Um, so that was a really amazing opportunity to spend three days learning about someone's culture who I hadn't got to know as well as I'd have liked when I lived in Australia. Um, was really happy with how that video came out in the end. Um, so I think that was probably one of the the best things I've done with them um, because for me, travel was all about the people, and that really was a great chance to get to know um, get to know Bino and get to know his Port Douglas in Queensland. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really diverse um, in terms of of opportunities in, you know, not just with Lonely Planet, but within the travel world now, you know, there's so many types of different media and things going on right now that I think if anyone's looking to kind of, you know, branch out and work with other publishing houses or companies, like, you know, it's all that networking. And I never expected when I signed up for this uh, Pathfinder scheme with Lonely Planet as a community member, I never expected to work with them. I just thought it would be a cool way to network and chat with other people that have a similar interest and get tips for traveling. So, you know, in the space of a couple of years to, to then be on a beach in Australia filming with them um, is just incredible. And I think that's why it's really important to just grab, grab opportunities. I see so many people talking down opportunities in this industry because it's not making loads of money straight away or whatever, but actually, you know, those doors open and lead on to other things. So, and I saw that their um, the 2019 Best in Travel was just released, and yep. you're actually, you're writing on Indonesia made the list. Um, can you tell me yes. a little bit more about this list and how it's created and and why uh, you wanted Indonesia on that? So um, that is um, a huge thing. So the, the work for the campaign Best in Travel starts around February or March each year. Um, and we've got, I think Lonely Planet's got about, I think there's nine global offices, maybe more. Um, and basically there's a, um, everybody fills in a survey, everyone that's written for Lonely Planet, uh, works there, writers on the road, photographers, everyone fills in the survey of cool places they think for the year ahead and why. And then on one afternoon, um, there's a travel hack in each office where everybody comes into the office and moves around different rooms and sits around tables and is bouncing off ideas of, hey, this is a really cool place. I went recently. Um, this is happening there next year. It's really exciting, blah, blah. And then from there, um, a lovely lady compiles all of that into a load of spreadsheets and it goes off to the destination editors. Um, so the destination editors are the people who commission any content for each destination. And they will go through it and fact check it and make sure 
all of these suggestions match up, etc. And then from there, it goes to an expert panel of six people. Uh, and Tony Wheeler, the founder, is still on that panel. And they will pick out the final 10 best cities, countries, destinations, and value. So from um, I wrote about the Indonesia section in this new book, which I'm excited to grab a copy of. Um, but it's not like I went just to be on this list, as did many other people. And then it's gone through this whole process through hundreds of people and discussions and chats for that final list to come out. So it really is a, a list written by hundreds and hundreds of experts all together who are out in the world, in every country in the world, and you know, knowing what's exciting and what's new. And there's some really cool places on the list um, this year. Um, which is really exciting to see. There's quite places that are new to me, and uh, so it's, it's, I think it's probably the best list they've ever produced. Um, so it's yeah, it's really proud to be a part of that. That's so cool. I can't believe how long it takes to get that put together, but it makes sense when you're at getting feedback from the entire company. <laughs> yeah, it's um. That's one of the things I do love about Lonely Planet is when they do something, they do it right. There's always a lot of um. A lot of passion and thought goes into anything. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of passion that go into that from the writers on the road and the, the staffers in the office. And them. yeah, it was really cool to be. It was my first year being part of that experience. Um, yeah, it was really cool. All right, so a few more questions and then we can kind of wrap this up. Um, I saw one of your posts on Instagram that was I think it was a little over a year ago. Um, and you had a quote that said, travel isn't about reinvention, it's just about perspective. And um, said, like, last time that you were in India, you had a pretty life-changing perspective. Um, can you explain more about this shift and kind of, like, how travel allows you to experience these shifts in perspectives? Yeah, sorry. Um, so India is a country that I've been to a few times, and it is a fascinating place and it's so different from anywhere I've ever been so the tour company I work for in Australia we run tours through um, the company's called Hands On Journeys and a big part of what we do is called empowerment tourism so it's not really volunteering in the sense that our travellers go and volunteer but funds from the tour go to various projects um, so there we do women empowerment projects in the slums in Delhi and sponsor um, a school there in the slum um, and then the travelers get to go and see where their money's gone, but they're not going in and working or, you know, the, the funds have gone to help people when they get to meet them, but they're not necessarily going in and building a school or, or whatever that is. Um, so that tour, when I first went on it was, um, completely life changing for me because it was just a world I was so un, unaware of, I guess, like you, you see things on TV um, but they don't necessarily always register, I guess, because it's just something that you can't necessarily comprehend until you've been there. So um, for me, it was just a country that was very different to anything I'd ever known before. And I was coming towards the kind of end of my year year in, in Southeast Asia and, and Asia itself. Um, and I just experienced so much. I'd been in Myanmar before that. Um, and I just experienced so much in the last few months that it really just was something really shifted in my mind of of how the world works and what it really looks like to so many people and how unaware of that I was from 
you know, my background growing up in the south of England. Um, and then working with the tour company who, like I said, similar, who founded it. She set it up after having a brain aneurysm and being told she was going to die. She was an immigrant herself from Mauritius to Australia. So a big part of her wish for the tour company was to take a lot of those funds and the profit and put it back into projects to help the communities where we traveled. So seeing that kind of inaction in 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 India, in Delhi, and you know how passionate she was and Sonu who who had set up those schools there uh, were and meeting all of the really inspiring people that made that that happen and made it happen so they could send their kids to school and it really I don't know something just shifted in my mind during that week of how I needed to look at the world um, and just to be a lot more grateful and to um, yeah, and I think that's really affected all of my travel since in that I've, I've really wanted to travel to get to know people and places a lot more than through attractions. And I think a lot of people assume being a photographer, I'm just always photographing, but most of my time actually when I'm traveling is sitting down and meeting people, having coffees with people and just getting to know the people. And, and India was really the, the trigger for that to start. Yeah, it, it seems like the people of a place are really important to you, and um, I guess in the in the last year or two, or maybe beyond, do you have any examples of some really important lessons you've learned from other people uh, along your journey? Yeah, there's um, there's a few. One of them, um, when I was in Cambodia, I got chatting to a guy called Duke, who. Um, who tried to talk to us the night before and we were having dinner, but we were having dinner, so I said, I'll speak to you another time. Then the next day, I saw we we grab a coffee together, and he told me his story about um, how he had um, lost his arms um, in um, quite terrible circumstances there, and how he now set up his bookshop, and this is what he does, because it's something he's able to still do. Um, so that's just one example of where you know, someone's given me their time to, to sit and talk to me. And um, and then he gifted me a um, Cambodian phrase book. Um, he said, next time you come back, you can speak to me in, in Kima. Um, so that was just a really good example, I think, of, of how people are just so kind and welcoming and open to sharing. Again, when I was in Vietnam, um, Probably the toughest thing that's ever happened in my travels when I was in Vietnam, we um, I spent some time at a hospital that cares for um, victims of and generations since of Agent Orange. Um, so we were in there, and that was quite hard. Um, was in there doing some support work, and one of the guys there asked me for some coffee. He was like, "All we need is coffee. We don't have any coffee. We've run out. Can you get us some coffee?" Um, and it just really kind of shook me that you know people that have been through so much hardship and you don't have that much, actually what, you know, they wanted was some company and to share a coffee. So those are just two kind of examples that is hard to sum it up quite quickly of, um, of, you know, the time that we spent together with those people. But those are two examples of where people given me their time and got to know me. And, um, that happens quite a lot quite open to grabbing coffee with anyone anywhere at any time pretty much i find the best way to kind of 
you know, meet people is just to be open and sit down and have a chat. And, you know, a lot of times giving people your time is one of the best gifts you can give. And I really appreciate when people give it to me. Um, but I think, again, traveling solo or um, on the tour in India, for example, which was specifically to travel in that different kind of way, opens you up a lot more to the, the chance to meet people and have those conversations than if you were traveling in a group. So it's, um, yeah, there's been a, quite a few moments that really shaped me, I guess, in the past couple of years. So when you're meeting so many people across different cultures and different walks of life, are there any similarities you've discovered among people in general? Yeah, I think everyone's a lot more similar than than we'd ever think from looking at the news or whatever. I think, you know, people generally just want to live a good life and have security for their family and friends. And I think that, you know, that's the very basis of most humans that I've met. And I think when we kind of focus on that and just remember most people are just good, decent people trying to live a good life, um, that it becomes a lot easier to get rid of any preconceived notions people have and to be a lot more open to then getting to know the individual behind that. I think it's, you know, a lot of people put up guards when they meet new people, especially when they're traveling abroad, which is, you know, completely makes sense in a foreign environment that you would want to do that. But the sooner you can break through those, the quicker you can actually make a connection. And I think, I think the other thing that I've really found most people have in common is, is most people are very interested in hearing about, other cultures so you know i definitely feel like if i sit down and have a coffee with someone on the streets of mumbai it's a two-way exchange you know i think people are, are interested by stories and and hearing about other people's worlds and you know it's such a beautiful time to be alive with air travel as accessible as it is to you know go and have these conversations and hear these stories and get to know someone not through a book or a nat geo documentary but in person i think it's I've, I've, it's really made me a lot less scared of the world and a lot more appreciative of just how kind people generally are I think that's a good place to wrap up then yeah it's it's amazing really kind of what you learn about other people and across the other side of the world who you think have just such a different life and then you find out like oh no, they're actually pretty similar to me and we kind of want the same things and don't want to do this. And yeah, it's, it's really cool to see that. And uh, I don't know if if there's any other way to get that experience other than traveling. So I think that's really one of the, the best aspects of going out and doing a trip and kind of getting a taste for a different culture. Yeah, absolutely. And my kind of end goal is to eventually have some kind of charity that will help people travel who can't who don't have access to funds to do it because i think it's such a life-changing experience and in indonesia for example i remember having a conversation with once and i was showing all the photos of all the places i've been in her country and she was like oh i wish one day i could do that but i know i never be able to afford to and i felt terrible that you know i was a guest in her country and i had seen so much more of it and then she had the opportunity to so the plan eventually would be to set up some kind of travel fund um, Nomadic Matt has done something similar for, for schools in the US to help them travel, um, which I think is great. I'd love to do something similar to help people see their own countries a bit more. Um, so yeah, that's something I've got in the pipeline. 
in a year or two to kind of really hopefully make happen. That would be awesome. I'm looking forward to, to following your story and seeing what you're able to do. Fingers crossed. Thank you. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, hey, Dan, thanks so much. And uh, where can people find you on either the internet or your social media handles? What is the best place to reach out to you if they want to ask a question or hear more about some hidden gems in Europe? Um, reach out anywhere. I am Dan Flying Solo on all social media and flyingsolo.com. Um, I'm on Instagram the most, so if you drop me a DM on there, I will get back to you as soon as I can. Um, so yeah, probably the best place to find me is on the old gram. All right. And uh, any last parting thoughts for our listeners? Um, yeah, if you're thinking about traveling, if you're thinking about solo traveling, if you're thinking about business, um, really make it happen. You know, like the thoughts and the seeds are in your mind to think about it because you, you probably want to do it. So, you know, even if you just start with a two-day trip somewhere for the weekend or, you know, you start part-time blogging at home to get a lot of business up, uh, make it happen because if you'd have told me three years ago this my life would look like this, I'd have laughed in your face. Um, but it turns out kind of those dream jobs and things that you think can only happen to other people can happen for you. So, um, yeah, just give it a shot. Go out, see the world, meet people, and, um, yeah, fill your life with amazing memories. Terrific. All right, well, hey, Dan, thanks again, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, until next time. Cheers. Cheers, bye. Hey everyone, Lee here again real quick with the question of the episode, and I actually asked this one to Dan, but I want to hear your answers as well. So the question is, what is an important lesson you've learned from other people along your travels? Head to edgeofcomfort.com forward slash EOCP15, that's 1-5, and leave your answer or story in the comments section at the bottom of the post. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to reading your answers. Cheers!